Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you with knowledge so you are empowered to be able to make smarter financial decisions in your life. And I want to tell you, I am just back from uh, Habitat for Humanity Build in Oklahoma. It was the second annual Clark Howard Blitz Build in Tulsa. We completed six homes, and it was a, a really heartwarming event. Six hardworking families will be moving into these homes that they will buy on sale at lower prices with lower mortgage payments because of the wonderful volunteers who volunteer at Habitat weekend after weekend and the sponsors who put in the seed money to be able to buy the materials to build the homes. And you personally, this you're up to house 98? 97. It? 97. 97. You're exaggerating so much. Oh, yeah. You're going to hit 100. 100 in February of 24, which had been a goal of mine long, long ago. I set that goal 22 years ago with the goal of being able to sponsor and volunteer on 100 Habitat homes by 2020. And I didn't make it be 24 instead. But. Oh, my. Well, I have to say that's a lot of money. I don't even want to add up all the money, but you talk about saving money all the time. But in t- this case, in a case with so many charities, I know you hate me doing this, but I just I have to say you are so incredibly generous and you've given you've given a lot of money. So that's important well, to you. You've saved money in other areas and you give it to people, which is incredible. Well, I you know. Thank you. Uh, I'm supposed to say thank you. But it's not about me. But the reason I do donate to Habitat and the reason I've been involved as a volunteer since 1993 is because I've seen it work. You know, it creates independence. Housing affordability in the United States, as we talk about all the time on our podcast and on our website, it's a brutal problem right now for people. The high interest rates, the much higher home prices than we had as recently as four years ago. And so the thing that Habitat does and other housing organizations is so important to give people an opportunity to climb onto that ladder for the American dream. And with Habitat, you don't pay, you don't stay. A lot of people have this misunderstanding that you get your house for free if you're a Habitat homeowner, like some TV reality show. So for me, Habitat works because you it's the best of community. People come together and people, you don't even know anything about construction. You come in on a Saturday or whatever day the build is going on and you volunteer and you help make those houses happen one step at a time. You'll be amazed at what you're able to do on a Habitat site that you never could do on your own at your own home unless you're handy, which I'm not. But I've done everything there is to do on a Habitat home at some point over the last 30 years. And so 
If you don't think you can help, you don't think you can contribute, of course you can. Labor's great, money's great, the combination's great, whatever it is. And if Habitat's not your thing, get involved. We're always complaining about our country. You know, we're on the wrong track, we're blah, 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 blah. So where are you making things better? How are you making things better? Where could you take your interests and provide help to your community, your neighborhood, your city, your state? Think about it and think about making a difference. And so, as we said earlier, we'll be building houses 98, 99, and 100 over this winter in Atlanta, Georgia. So if any of our Clarksters or the the Clark squad want to come build on a Saturday, we're going to be posting information on how to volunteer. If you want to come into town, Clark is usually there on every single weekend build, and we'd love to have you come help if you want to take a trip. We've had volunteers, uh, you know, we've built in a number of states. We've had volunteers come from far and wide to our habitat builds wherever we built in the country. I know when we built in Missouri, we had volunteers from all over the Midwest who came in to help build, rebuild Joplin, Missouri after the devastating tornado last decade in Joplin. And in the build we just did in Oklahoma, we have volunteers come from around the Midwest to volunteer. And in Atlanta, we've had volunteers come from Europe, believe it or not, mm-hmm. and from all over the country. We have people who combine it. They'll be going to Florida on vacation since we're a winter build in Atlanta, and they'll come in from wherever. They'll come to Atlanta, they'll volunteer, and then they'll go on to Florida, which, depending on where you're going in Florida, is 6 to 12 hours away, whatever beach you're going to. So, I mean, it's volunteer tourism. Is there some term for that? Volunteerism, yeah. Have we just invented a new term or has it been around a long time? But enough about that. You didn't come (laughs) here for that. You came here for advice for your wallet. And first, we're going to talk about something. We're getting one question after another after another about, and that's bill shock from auto insurance. And there's enormous change going on in the auto insurance market. I want to tell you the nuts and bolts of what you need to do about your auto insurance. And later, I'm going to address something a lot of people fear, and that is being broke as they age after they stop working. And I want to talk about a possible solution that lets you rest easy, that you're not going to be impoverished, starving late in life if you are blessed with extreme longevity in years. So let's talk about the auto insurance market. I shared recently the financial turmoil facing Allstate. Allstate has told the Wall Street crowd that they're going to push up rates for auto insurance customers as much as 40%. Because Allstate's been losing a lot of money on auto insurance. And they've just been the most public about it. This has been a problem throughout the auto insurance industry. I've addressed before and questions I've had the factors, so I'll just be very brief explaining those. The auto insurance market is in a world of hurt because the cost of repairing vehicles has gone up a whole lot in recent years, way beyond general inflation in the economy. The cost of vehicles has been one of the big factors in inflation. And yes, the cost of used vehicles has started to decline. But from a very high base, still with the average cost of a used vehicle, 
much higher than it was pre-pandemic. So if I'm an insurer, an auto insurer, and I total your car following an accident, what I'm having to pay you for that total vehicle is way higher than it was just a few years ago. So the insurers facing these much higher costs for both repairing vehicles that are repairable, paying for your rental vehicle that you're in a lot longer because the repairs are taking longer, totaling a vehicle and having to pay you more money, the math is not working for them. So that's why people are getting these very large increase in costs at renewal time for auto insurance. All auto insurers, though, are not created equal. And auto insurers slice and dice the market differently. One insurer may look at me as a much higher risk or charge me much more money based on the risk profile I am than another insurer, another, another. So a lot of us have been very loyal to a particular auto insurer for a long, long time. And this is a time to test that loyalty. You get a notice of a giant increase in your premium, go reshop your auto insurance with others. Make sure you're getting quotes for equivalent coverage. There's also a time, as I talk about with homeowners, to rethink what deductible you have on auto insurance. People commonly have deductibles that are way too low. You typically want a deductible of $1,000 on your auto insurance. The reason is for the $1,000 is that insurers have a big cost in processing claims, not just paying them, but processing them. If they don't have to worry about you for something that's hundreds of dollars instead of thousands of dollars, then they're going to give you a lower premium for that. In addition, claims really hurt you. So you make a small claim against your auto insurance, it's going to eat up your wallet for years to come and make it tough for you to comparison shop with other insurers. So you raise that deductible and you're going to lower that cost. Now here's the bad news. The other thing is that if you are a high income earner or you have a decent amount of assets, look at how much liability coverage you have. So now I want you to spend more money if you have minimal amounts of liability. So a story I told two years ago is just one example where a doctor's daughter had an accident that was her fault. And the doctor who had a really successful practice, a lot of assets, lost everything and had to file bankruptcy because he actually had state minimums for liability and got wiped out by the liability claims for his daughter's accident. So think about all these things as you reset with auto insurance and know that shopping around is one of the great ways for you to get this cost under control. Okay, first questions from David in Hawaii. For premium or travel credit cards, how much does one need to spend annually to make it worth the $500 plus fees? Multiple cards cost $1,000 plus. I understand high income earners and frequent flyers, but I know many people chasing the credit card hype and status that they see being promoted on the internet. 
I see many people in my day-to-day life who are in the 40 to 70K income range who only travel a few times a year and they have two to three premium cards. So my question is, excluding any sign-up bonuses and extra random perks that go unused, about how much should one be spending to justify these credit card fees? So this is one that people cringe when I answer this. If you are carrying, let's say the three full fare airlines, an American Airlines, Delta, United, tied in credit card, or you're looking at one of the independents, American Express Platinum, the Chase Sapphire Reserve, or the Capital One Venture X. With any of these, to make them work, at a minimum, you need an average charge volume of $5,000 a month, $60,000 a year. So when you ask me about somebody with a forty dollars to $70,000 annual income, obviously after tax, they would have spent their entire annual income plus in what they would need to charge on one of these premium airline cards to make it worth having. And people will throw out very specific circumstances to me that sometimes make an exception to this, but use that as a trigger point. And if you have more than one, we're talking about you having Another 60000 a year spent on the second one, on the third one. So if you have two of them, you need to be spending the equivalent of $120,000 a year between these two cards to make it worth it. If you have three, $180,000 a year in charge volume to make it worth having those airline cards, which means we're talking a tiny sliver of the market or people who travel continually for work. For everybody else... A cashback card, if you pay your balances in full, is where the action is, or a card with a very low ongoing interest rate, if you run balances, which almost always will be a credit union-issued credit card, not one from a bank. John in Virginia says, Clark, my wife, still working remotely for now, and I recently retired at age 50 with a pension and medical dental covered, would like to rent out our paid-off house in Virginia for a passive income of $21,000 a year after property management fees and taxes. We would then purchase an RV and travel full-time, but also looking for our forever home, leaning towards tax-friendly Tennessee. We will pay cash for the RV and tow vehicle and save the estimated annual RV operating costs of $80,000 to do this for eight years. We know we would need to sell the Virginia house within five years to not get clobbered by taxes. We also know there are better options than investing in a depreciating asset like an RV. Yet, this is about experiencing the national parks and sites our country has to offer more than it's about the investment. We know going into this that we'll be lucky to even get half of our money back when it comes time to sell the RV and the associated equipment. What are your thoughts on this? What advice would you give someone embarking on this type of adventure? So first thing, John, if I got everything right, you were like the lucky bug. You not only qualified for a full pension at age 50, but your pension, your retirement came with full health coverage at age 50, which deals with the biggest problem for people who retire in their 50s or early 60s, and that's nursing their wallet forward with health care coverage till they become Medicare eligible at age 65. I mean, you've got a clean sweep of good financial circumstances here. Just incredible. 
and you've been great savers and all that. So RV, you may have already done what I'm going to suggest, but the first lengthy trip you take, rent an RV for a month, live the RV life for a month and see if it is what you dreamt it would be and you love doing it. If you already have done that, then ignore what I just said. The good news, the RV market is in a really bad down cycle for the RV industry right now, which is great for you. A lot of people, their COVID puppy was buying an RV. When people hit the road during COVID and were living at RV parks, living in RVs, campers, things like that, And so the used market is depressed. The new market is depressed too. But the opportunity for you, you were talking about the depreciation, is you will likely be able to find a pretty new RV at a giant discount to what a new one would be. And so this is a time that the depreciation curve is absolutely going to be your friend because RVs have a giant loss of value in the first couple of years, much more than a car does. So you are not going to have to worry likely about the depreciation you expect. If you buy, instead of one that you tow, one that's an engine-based, a full RV, you've got to have it checked out by a big engine mechanic to make sure that the condition of it is rock solid. As for looking to retire with a target since you're in Virginia looking at Tennessee because of the tax differences. Keep an open mind. As you travel America in your RV, you may find that after your years on the road, you want to settle a very different place than where you first think you want to settle. And so don't now narrow your options down to potentially moving to Tennessee. Think wider as you travel. And your math is all fine. You're going to be in great shape. Coming up ahead, we're going to talk about longevity. How do you deal with something that can be both a blessing and a curse? You live longer than you expect, but you may not have the money to be able to make that work in your life. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We have an aging population in the United States. And that's no surprise. We know that. But what is surprising is how long so many of us are living. So my two grandfathers died at 65 and 62 years old. 
My father died at 72 years old. And today, I have siblings and first cousins that are way, way past those ages. And many of them look like they're going to make it into their 90s or maybe past 100 in terms of their health profile. That's happening more and more that we don't do dangerous work like we used to. Medicine, most of us, medicine has made enormous advancements. And a lot of people pay a lot of attention to things that improve their health. And so people who are doing those things to live a healthier life, whether it's what they eat or exercise they do or getting the right amount of sleep, whatever it is, people are living longer and longer and longer. And so this is a huge dilemma for you if you're older or for your parents or grandparents based on their age. And the big problem is where you, as you get older, you get to a point where you're not well enough to work, but your cash has dwindled or it's gone. And the only thing you have to live on, like roughly a third of retirees do now, is a monthly social security check. And it's really hard to get it done with that. So life expectancy is a big roll of the dice. And you can look a certain amount is uh, genetic, but most of it is just randomized. It's luck. And it's the things I talked about, about how you take care of yourself. And see, you could have somebody say, well, you know, the actuarial tables say you're going to live to 82, you're going to live to 85, you're going to live to 88, you're going to live to 79 or whatever it is. And you're thinking, well, wonder if I got enough money to get to that. And the thing is, when you look at a life expectancy, it's something that's hard for people to get their arms around. Roughly half of people are going to live longer than that expected life expectancy. The other half, probably less. But the point is, this is a hard number to pin down. Unless you're Daddy Warbucks and you're just rolling in money, this is something to solidly think about. And there's a solution that's almost impossible for me or anyone else to get anyone to consider. It's what's known as longevity insurance. The way it works is when you're going into retirement or you're approaching retirement or you're already retired, you figure out, okay, I got to have so much money to make it to age 80 or age 85 or whatever the number is. And those are the two most common for what I'm going to talk about. And so you have this money that would be okay to exhaust completely by age 80 or 85, because then you can buy a longevity insurance policy that pays you a check every month for living longer than what you might have expected. So if you buy it starting at age 80, for 80 plus the number of years you live, you live to 100 for the next 20 years, it's going to pay you every single month a good amount of money. 85, if you wait till then, then it's going to pay you a lot more money per month every month going forward. And so there's no free lunch here. The way it works is you buy one of these policies, make sure it's from a really solid 
insurance company rated A plus or A plus plus by Ambest. You buy one, usually people buy it in their 60s, and then it starts paying at 80 or 85, most common. So it pays you so much because it's a roll of the dice. So many people who buy these pass away before they turn that age. So the insurer is keeping all that money. And then if you're somebody who lives longer than they expect, then you trigger that policy payment starting at 80 or 85, and you're getting a really hefty check from the years the insurance company was able to make money on your money that you already paid them to buy this longevity insurance. So you get that, plus you get additional money because so many other people didn't make it. So the policies can be really generous. The insurance company can make money, your money earned money, and then your money has more money because of all the people who didn't make it. Now, I don't know anybody, we'll never know, right, because they're gone, who's like, oh, man, I never should have bought that policy because I'm not going to live long enough to benefit from it. So what? The whole purpose of this is to not outlive your money. And that's why I love these. I have a briefing on longevity insurance, how it works, how you buy one policy at Clark.com. But it is a solution to a real problem and that we're living longer than people thought we would. But a lot of us, as we get later in our years, we're not, uh, truth be told, as healthy as it would be fun to live with. And it requires uh, more expenses, more care potentially, and the longevity insurance is there to help you through that time of your life. So Krista, how long would you, if you to close your eyes and think, how long do you think you're going to live? Because you eat all this healthy food all the time and you exercise like a maniac. Recently, you did a September 11th challenge and you walked how many steps up? up 2071 steps, which is the number of steps in the World Trade Center buildings. And after you did that, my you calves were, hurt. Yeah, they hurt a lot. <laughs> but that's nothing, you know, obviously. Right. Um, but it's really cool the remembrance you were part of. But you are fit as a fiddle. You eat all this stuff I don't understand and you, you do all these things to stay healthy. So are you going to live to 110? I mean, I would hope so, but to me, it's more the quality of life. Like you were saying, I mean, I don't want to be not able to really live and be older and just be taken care of. So I think it just depends. We'll see what happens. You know, none of us really know when our time is up, but as I get older, I just want to feel good, you know, and I want to be able to enjoy my, my family and friends and my life. So that's what matters. I just saw I that there's a great thing on Netflix, Live to 100, I think it's called. It's a series, docu-series with Dan, I'm going to mess up his name, I think it's Butner, and he wrote the Blue Zones, um, original Blue Zones book where, about these places in the world where people tend to live to 100 or older. And really the main factors are community, you know, they're taking care of each other, they're in close community. And they're not lonely. They're, that's what I mean. That's, yeah, that's, that's what the it's big about. thing it's about community. community. They do eat, you know, pretty simple meals together, but they're not exercising like maniacs or anything like that. And they keep working. They have a reason for living, which is really, really cool. So on that point, regardless of what age you are, we don't join organizations like we used to. We're not part of things like we used to be. People don't go to church or religious congregations like they used to. They don't join civic groups like they used to. All these things we used to do 
And so people spend a lot of time in isolation. And so regardless of your age, overcoming that, whether it's volunteering somewhere, whatever it is, being with other people is one of the best medicines you can ever have for life today and life going forward and longevity of your life as well. All right, let's get to some questions. And this one's from a younger person named Mia in Georgia. She says, hi, I'm 12 and I love your podcast. Thank you for all your free advice and having a clean family friendly show. I appreciate your being humble on the Clark Stinks segment. I do have a question. I'm new to the savings game. I would like to open a retirement fund. So I spoke with my accountant, but I don't have a consistent salary and I know what car I want to get and I want to save for it. Are there any tips you have that can help me save? All right. First of all, your industriousness is really great. 12 years old. I started working when I was 11. It's more uncommon today that you say you're working irregularly. The fact that you're working at 12 is great. What you do with that money is really going to be your choice. But the smartest thing anyone can do through your teenage years coming up is as you work as much money as you can you want in a Roth IRA. Roth IRAs are incredibly flexible and the money grows tax-free through the years and when a teenager puts money in a Roth it means the amount of money they have to have for financial independence later in life is so much less because of money you put aside now. I was talking with a, a kid who has a business where he grows watermelons and then he goes out and sells them and he's making decent money right now doing that. He asked me what to do and I said, open a Roth IRA with Fidelity Investments and start putting money in that Roth IRA. In your case, that would be great to do. The car, though, is a whole different thing. If your goal is four or five years from now to be able to buy your own car, that's money that has to go in just a plain old savings account. You can't invest money you're going to need four or five years down the road. And with money, you're not having to pay mortgage or rent. You're not having to pay utilities. You're not having to do any of those things. So money you make is for walking around spending. If you can resolve to save half of everything you make, and put a lot of it in a Roth IRA and whatever of the rest you put into a savings account, and the other half of your money you spend walking around, it will change your life now and down the road. Awesome. Okay, Tammy in Florida says, I want to travel to Ireland with my three college-age boys for the FSU versus Georgia Tech game in 2024. How can I plan for that by collecting points to offset the cost, or does Clark have a better idea? So, <laughs> Krista did this I did. several years ago, your beloved Boston College. They played Georgia Tech in Dublin. It was Georgia Tech then as well. And did Georgia Tech win or Boston College win? Boston, no, I can't remember. <laughs> the trip was so you, fun. You were, I think you were, we lost. You were in the I pub so much, you don't I remember the game? I was not. I definitely was not. No, I mean, I had a blast. I went with some friends and I traveled around. I think we might have lost that game, actually. Well, Tammy's going with three college-age boys. Mm -hmm. So um, how old do you have to be in Ireland to drink? Old enough to go up to the bar and yeah. order, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, no age 21 there for drinking. So collecting points. Here's the weird thing. You're going to need four tickets 
to go to Ireland, you live in Florida, the airfares to Ireland out of Florida are so expensive. The airfares out of New York to Ireland, so cheap. Like, it's not all unusual for the round-trip airfare in the fall to be 300-and-something round-trip, 400-and-something round-trip out of New York. It'd be better than thinking about points since you can fly Florida, New York, New York, Florida so, so cheap in the fall. Fares recently have been a 100-round trip, 120-round trip, Florida to New York. When you are looking at this, you're going to wait months and months and months to do this. Probably sometime next August, believe it or not, is when you want to be looking at these tickets, July, August, and look from New York to save that money. I would look from Boston too, Aer Lingus. I mean, there's some great deals out of Boston. That's great advice too. And you can get from Florida to Boston very cheaply as well. And when I went over the list recently, the cheapest cities to fly out of in the United States to go overseas, New York and Boston, I think were numbers one and two or one and three. Mm -hmm. New York was absolutely number one, but Boston has a lot of cheap fares for you and so many Irish descendants live in the Boston area. That's why there's so much air service. They basically have a shuttle there yeah. to Ireland. <laughs> yeah, because it's five and a half hours. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Jared in Tennessee says, I'm 28 years old and have been listening to your show since college. My wife and I currently max our Roth IRAs and I contribute up to the match with my company's Roth 401k. We have an emergency fund of six plus months in high yield savings. I'm curious on your thoughts about using a target date retirement income fund. And they give an example as a simple, well-diversified and moderately less risky investment for part of the emergency fund and more so for additional intermediate term savings. I thought about the retirement income fund that would be a clever way to store intermediate savings that might be accessed in three to five years for trips, et cetera. But I want your opinion. Jared, I love the way you think. Don't use a target retirement fund. Because the way they are managed, if you read in the even the summary prospectus, they'll tell you that they don't worry about taxes on those because they're typically in a tax-sheltered account, an IRA, 401k, that kind of thing. So the tax problems could be huge inside a targeted retirement fund. If you were looking to do something that would have lower risk, that would be for more intermediate-term savings look at a balanced index fund. There would be something that has minimal trade activity. You'd be subject typically only to overwhelmingly uh, long-term capital gains, which is an extremely low tax rate. And all my three favorite children sell uh, balanced index funds or balanced index ETFs, exchange traded funds. And that would be a viable alternative, but no target retirement funds ever outside of a retirement account. I'm going to squeeze in one more extra long episode today. Scott in Florida says, Fidelity says you can earn income by lending securities you already own with their fully paid lending program. You can earn monthly income by lending securities that are in demand. Have you heard about this? And if so, what do you think of it? Yes. I mean, this is a strategy where you're on the safe side a more speculative kind of activity that there are investors that will do. This is a safe way for you to have your investment, have it earn or lose based on what's happening with the marketplace. And your shares are available. You're lending them out 
and you're earning money on lending them out. It is a pretty esoteric part of the investing market. And it, if you make your shares available, it doesn't mean that they'll then be used because there may not be a counterparty who wants to be able to borrow your securities. But it is pretty much as low risk a transaction as you could do that could earn you money on something you're hoping to earn money through over the years as part of your investment portfolio. So I think it's fine to do so is for downsides in doing so. I'm not sure there are any significant gotchas. I'm sure that we will hear on Clark Stinks, though, from people who work in the investment community if I'm missing whatever downsides there are, and we'll share that on Clark Stinks if I've missed part of that. And I want to thank you so much for being part of today's episode. Know that although we serve you around the clock at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com, I am broadcasting right now from the facilities of the Team Clark Consumer Action Center. I'm watching a number of people in our center giving advice right now to consumers who are calling in for advice, a free service we've offered for just short of 31 years. And you can see how to get free advice 30 hours each week by going to clark.com slash CAC. Have a great day.